Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Theolyn Arduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and I am joined by Lucy Dallas, who I have missed over the past month or so. Lucy, it's good to have you back. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. I missed you too, Thea. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good, good. Uh, allotment updates, please, Lucy. I mean, what can I tell you? It's too hot. <laughs> well, um, it's too hot for things to grow. I'm not sure that's how it works. Well, some of the veg gets confused, put it that way, okay. when it starts getting this hot. Every year, I hope to be like Linus in the Peanuts cartoon, sitting in the pumpkin patch, waiting uh, for the great pumpkin to visit me. And I fear that's not going to work this year. Mm. We can hardly uh, move here for um, for corn on the cob. Just so many. Well, that's just showing off. I mean, well, well I mean, done. I haven't grown them myself. <laughs> Someone else grew them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I really can't take credit. That's a good problem um, to have, I think. It is. It is. It's true. Lisa, we have quite a lot to get through this week. As I mentioned on last week's show, the past few weeks have seen new books come flooding in, and they still are. September has always been a big month for publishing, but this year it seems even more so. So. Coming up on this week's show, we will do our best to keep our heads above water and pick our way through some of the more notable books of the moment. We'll be covering mostly fiction here, including the Booker shortlist just announced, and we'll have a foray into the French scene courtesy of Lucy. Uh, And then to round things off, we'll pick out a few pieces we think you should know about from this week's issue of the TLS, including three pieces that approach Israel and Palestine from rather different angles. Um, For all of this, we need Toby Lishtig, a man of many editorial hats, including fiction and politics, both of which will get an outing today. Welcome, Toby. Hello. Hello. Which which hat shall we go with first? I think possibly fiction. It is often said that the two hats blur into one another these days, but I would like, to keep, them, I would like to keep them separate. Um, yeah, I don't so. know what that kind of hat would look like, kind of half Stetson, half... Sort of mag, mag, M-A-G-A, MAGA hats. With yeah, a, I don't something know. like JK would wear, maybe. Yeah. Let's not go there. Anyway, this is a big month for fiction in particular, isn't it? I think not only because of yeah. the, the book, a shortlist, and we'll get to that in a moment, but that, I mean, what is there to kind of note people seem it, to be talking about? It's September, as you say, it's always a big month for books in general and for fiction in particular. You know, it's, it's, where, it's apparently when people start Christmas shopping. I find that quite hard to believe, but anyway, that, that is, <laughs> I think that's the logic behind it. And of course, this year, because of COVID, all those books that were coming out in March and April didn't because the worry was that no one was going to be doing anything let alone going to bookshops and buying books and stuff so they they got punted to September and we ended up having 600 hardbacks being published on September the 3rd alone that's your takeaway stats to start with I mean that's that's a lot that sounds like quite a lot to me 
and quite a few of those are novels. <laughs> As ever, there were some quite big novels. So we've had new books by Martin Amos, for example, Harry Kunzru, quite a few interesting debuts, some of which have ended up on the Booker shortlist being published also around the start of September. Well, let's talk about the Booker shortlist then. Um, yes. the, so the prize is open to books published between the 1st of October last year and the 30th of September this year. You mentioned Martin Amis, but his most recent novel doesn't feature, rightly, it seems, uh, going on, on, on the if, review that we ran last week. If you believe uh, Emma <laughs> Gordon, which I do, and actually I've read um, a good chunk of the book, and with all due respect to Martin Amis, I think it's it doesn't belong on the Booker shortlist or yeah. longlist. I like Edmund Gordman's uh, line on it. He said, I have to report that the finished product is a considerably weirder proposition than I had been anticipating, but not necessarily weird in a good way. Yeah, I was about to say that makes it sound quite good. I'd be, yeah. I'd be well up for that. But yeah. uh, there was, oh, well. there, there was, there's interest to be had. It's a novel, but it's about his, you know, Amos's life. And of course, he wrote his extremely good memoir experience uh, a little over 20 years ago. And it seems to be a bit of a kind of auto-fictional rehashing of that, which sort of raises the question, why? Um, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. My favourite um, question. Your favourite question. Um, but anyway, back to the book of shortlist. Yes, uh, yes, tell us about the which shortlist. Amos, Amos does not feature. So we have four debuts, which sounds pretty surprising, four, four debuts out of six, except uh, on the long list there were eight debuts out of 13. So in, in a way the kind of work had already been done. Um, and there were some, some pretty big omissions from the long list. I was, I was really hoping to see Ben Lerner there, for example, for his novel The Topeka School, which I think is brilliant. Maggie O'Farrell for her novel Hamlet. But anyway, we got over that. That didn't happen. And I liked long list. I mean, I was a bit mystified by some of it because some of the debuts um, that were on it hadn't even come out when the list was announced earlier. I think it was late July. Um, now they, they are all out and I have seen all of them. And I think what it's boiled down to in a short list is really, really interesting. I, I'll quickly take uh, listeners through it in case they, they, they don't know what the shortlist is. I'll be quick. So there's Diane Cook with The New Wilderness, Titsi Dangaremga with This Mournable Body, Avni Doshi with Burnt Sugar, Mazar Mengitse with The Shadow King, Douglas Stewart with Shuggy Bane and Brandon Taylor, Real Life. Now, not many of those novelists are household names. And if you haven't already heard this news, which you almost certainly have, um, you will notice that Hilary Mantel does not feature on that shortlist. Um, and presumably that's sort of a response to what happened last year, is it? It's really difficult, this stuff, isn't it? Because, you know, the point of any prize is to reward the best book on any given criteria that the judges decide on and that the prize is, you know, the, the prize is based on. But of course, there's there's politics in it as well. There is definitely a case to be made that the last book in the Mantel trilogy, uh, The Mirror and the Light, is brilliant and possibly the best book that's been published this year. But also, I think you're right, Thea, you know, last year, slightly controversially, the prize was split between Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo, and the Atwood felt a bit like a Lifetime Achievement Award. Mm. Um, I, I personally didn't think it was anywhere nearly the best novel, um, left, you know, of, of, of the shortlist, let alone, you know, out of all the novels that were published last year. And I think, I wonder whether there was a slight worry this year oh, if we give it to Mantel, you know, she's already been fated for this trilogy. She's already been fated for the first two books in it with the Booker Prize. What's it actually going to do? You know, she probably, mm. I, I can't opine on her finances, but I don't imagine she needs the money desperately. And it certainly won't help her profile. And actually, I thought last year was quite a good experiment because, you know, you had Atwood, who was an international name, who, who won it, and her weekly sales nudged up by a few percent. Mm. 
And then you had Evaristo, who was, you know, she, she's known in literary circles, but she's hardly a kind of international household name. And her, her book, Girl, Woman, Other, its entire sales, you know, its, it's, its entire life. It was really sales, transformative. It, it doubled in a week. And that just shows the difference between giving the prize to someone who's already very famous and someone who isn't. Now, I guess one of the things about Mantell is, if the judges got together and decided, you know what, for whatever reason, either they didn't think the book was good enough or they just felt it was politically wrong to give it to her. If they weren't going to give her the prize, I'm really glad she's not on the shortlist because we're mm. having a conversation now. And I'm glad we're having this conversation now. When it comes to the actual Booker Prize being given in, in November, we've got that out of the way and we can concentrate on the six novels who are on it and we can stop talking about Mantell. Well, in, in that spirit, uh, you reviewed <laughs> Shuggy Bane <laughs> by Douglas Stewart in last week's issue of the TLS. So yes. uh, tell us um, what you make of it. So I think it's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, Douglas Stewart is Scottish, but he's lived in the States for a long time. And actually, this book came out in the States earlier this year, but it's only recently out in the UK. And it's set on a Glaswegian housing scheme in the 1980s. And it's billed as sort of the antidote to Alan Hollinghurst, The Line of Beauties. It's kind of Thatcher's Britain seen from the other side, which I think is kind of interesting in itself, because it sort of makes us wonder, would, would a Hollinghurst-type novel you know, the shenanigans of the posh set, you know, would that even be in the running for the Booker in 2020? It's an interesting question. Anyway, we're not necessarily going to go down that route now. It is incredibly moving. It's written in this sort of combination of, you know, you get the kind of Scottish vernacular voices coming into it, but it's also written in this kind of slightly more rem- remote voice. And it features the title character, Shuggy Bane. He's this little kid growing up with this haulingly alcoholic mother who's incredibly erratic, but also warm and loving and really not fit to look after him. And he's this very precocious little boy. And it's really about their evolving relationship and the tragedy of it and the beauty of it. And it's very, very nicely done. I'd just like to take full credit for that piece since I commissioned it. So thank you very much, Toby. <laughs> yes, uh, I did announce an a while ago piece. that I would, be writing, <laughs> I would be writing it if that was okay. And Lucy gave me said, oh, yes, okay, yes, I commissioned this. So that's how the internal mechanics of the TLS were <laughs> afraid. It's entirely corrupt. Don't tell them. Sorry. I'm, so- I'm sorry, listeners. <laughs> lifted up the curtain we also have reviews of three of the other books all in this week's issue so so I kind of I didn't make a kind of big song and dance about it in the issue itself but I thought because four of these books were only recently out so I thought it'd be interesting to put them all together and I put them all together before I knew what was going to be on the shortlist and so the, so the books we've reviewed are Avni Doshi, uh, Burnt Sugar, Brandon Taylor's Real Life Diane Cook's The New Wilderness, all of which did make it to the shortlist, and also Gabriel Krause's Who They Was, which is the one out of all of them that I really wanted to make it to the shortlist. I think it is totally brilliant, and I thought it was a potential book a winner, to be honest. Mm. So that's my only real disappointment. I mean, I I don't know if you want to quickly talk about each of those books, but Paul Gender's review, Krause's book, and it is, is narrated by and features basically a Kilburn gangster in his late teens, early 20s, entirely written in gangster patois, and it's really about the kind of high and low life of gangsterdom, written with this very, very unapologetic eye. It's quite ethically challenging because of that. And I should also say, sorry, the title character, you know, the, the person who it features is called Gabriel, and he's very much billed by the publishers as billed as the same person as the character. You know, it's, it's meant to be read as a sort of autofiction. Mm. Um, and, you know, by day he goes to university in London and studies and reads Nietzsche, and by night he goes and... Rob's Rolexes and uh, shanks people 
And it's not written from sort of the perspective of 20 years in the future where he's reformed and, you know, thinking about how awful his life was and how, you know, <laughs> how cruel he was. It's very much it's written in the first person, present tense. And it's really about the excitement of that life and the kind of brohood. And, you know, it's absolutely full of misogyny, um, but it's very much, I think, a realistic portrayal of the misogyny of gang culture. And there's something incredibly raw and authentic and, as I say, ethically troubling about it. And that in itself is really interesting. <laughs> it sounds like a challenge, though. It sounds like, I don't know, if they were trying to keep away from doing, uh, you know, making it about Hilary Mantel equally, if there is politics involved, if they had given it to that, there would have been, maybe they're trying to avoid a hoo-ha, partly because yeah. of they just, they just want one quiet year. They just want one yeah. quiet Well, maybe. I mean... For me, if it had made the shortlist or even one, it would have been the right sort of hoo-ha because we'd be discussing mm. the role of fiction yeah, yeah. and ethics in fiction and it's not really about the kind of, you know, the politics. But anyway, I, yeah, I think that, that would be good hoo-ha rather than why was this prize awarded to already famous person yeah. for Lifetime Achievement Award hoo-ha. <laughs> um, I have to admit that I've actually only read one of the books on the shortlist, but oh, I thought sad. it was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Which was that? The Mazamengiste, The Shadow King. Oh, no, that's um, the one that I know the least. But it looks oh, right, OK. Yeah, it's really good. I seem to have made a, a rule for myself where I'll only read something if it's, it's somehow connected to Italy. Um, <laughs> it's really good. It's a really kind of a really rich historical undertaking. It's set during the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in 1935. And the story, it draws on Mengiste's own family history. Her grandfather fought against the Italians. So, you know, it's a story of war. And there are these towering male figures. I mean, Mussolini for one. And then... There's Minim, he's called, the king of the novel's title. So you'd kind of expect it to be told from a male or multiple male perspectives. And yet, uh, Mengista gives us this character, Asta, who is a woman, she puts on her husband's clothes and she heads into battle. Uh, and the story is then kind of a patchwork of war scenes experienced from different perspectives, including that of there's an Italian Jewish photographer. And he's obviously on the brink of a whole other war with anti-Semitism taking hold back home, you know, a few years before... Uh, the racial laws in, in Italy in, in 1938. So there's this weird disjunction as well with um, Empress Selassie is in exile in England, in Bath, I think it is, yes, uh, while all of this is unfolding uh, back in Ethiopia. And then at the novel's end, there's this really like, beautiful, poignant note from from the author in which she tells about how she had always grown up knowing about her, her grandfather's role in history. And then she tells about how she, she discovered relatively recently that her great-grandmother took off into battle, you know, much like her, her protagonist did. But she, she'd never been told that story. She'd only ever heard about her grandfather. It's a really, really good book. Great. I wouldn't be at all surprised if that one. Yeah. But I mean, well, I, I, that's easy for me to say, not having to, read any of the other books. Well, no, no, to be honest, <laughs> I, I, I actually think it's a really strong list. And because I suppose this is not to kind of discredit any of the books. It's not that there's not one standout book. I just think they're, they're all really strong in different ways. And I could, I could almost see any of them winning it. Mm. And I think I... I think I'd be happy to see pretty much all of them winning it. Well, maybe that will happen this year. Maybe that'll <laughs> all win. There you <laughs> they're go. All, they're all going to win. Well, it's 50 but divided I... by six. Was that eight, <laughs> eight, eight grand and 333 quid or something? Yeah. We can't do that. We're arts that. people. Yeah, eight, eight and a bit. <laughs> maybe it be, I wonder if it will be a turn away from the great big names now. Uh, I wonder yeah. if that's a conscious thing or, mm. or whether it's just this year. Yeah. Mm. Well, one thing I would say, um, so, okay, we've got four debut novelists. I think Mengiste has, has written a novel before. Um, mm. Diane Cook's published short stories. But the, probably, although she won't be a household name, certainly to many in the UK, probably the kind of most experienced writer is Tsitsi Dangarenga. And her book, This Mournable Body, 
which is set in Zimbabwe um, in the 1990s, is also, like Mantel's book, uh, the third in a trilogy. The first one came out in the late 80s, and there was another one that came out about 15 years ago. And she's really good. Her first book, which was, which was part of that trilogy, Nervous Conditions, was huge, hugely fated at the time. And I don't, don't know how well it sold, but it was, you know, it was a big kind of critical success. But she isn't that well known. And, I, you know, if she, if she wins it with this one, I think it would be a really good reason to visit her back catalogue and, and to kind of give her a boost. So it's a really, really beautifully written book. Um, it it uh, features this very bright, but very also very ordinary and quite sort of emotionally stunted character who's essentially been, I guess, stunted by the political turmoil of the Zimbabwe in which she grew up. And it's about her descent into a kind of psychosis. And I mean, there's, a, there's this horrible scene when she's, she's working as a teacher and she ends up beating up one of the students and ends up in a psychiatric institution. And you know, she's not a very sympathetic character, um, mm. but it's very good on the way in which the kind of political impacts on the personal. And uh, yeah, it's another, it's another interesting one. And that sounds, yeah, that sounds brilliant. Um, Lucy, you're going to tell us what's going on in France. Well, uh, n- not all of it. Um, edited <laughs> highlights. Just in general. <laughs> Well, the thing is, the gilet jaune. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, so the rentrée in France is always a big deal. September is always a big deal. And what did you say to her? Be 600 books published. 600 books, yeah. 600 hardbacks on September the 3rd alone. Yeah. I mean, that does include uh, non-trade titles. I think, yeah, it includes I think, everything, I think there was something it? like 300 novels, though, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, huge, it's a huge it's, amount. It's, it's, yeah. In the, I think, and in France, they, I think they fairly regularly have 500 or so. Just because that's that's what they do, it's it's a big deal. So I was looking at the figures for this year. People are being a bit cagey because some of the they like to publish the big numbers, but then some of them last year there was some false accounting. But it was around five hundred, and I think it's around five hundred again this year. There are lots of big books coming out. One of them, which I think uh, will be a big one, is Yoga by Emmanuel Carrère. When you look at the uh, on the website, it says it's about yoga and depression and meditation and terrorism. And in fact, I'm not even sure it's a novel. I think it, it probably isn't a novel. Uh, but Emmanuel Carrère is an incredibly uh, well-respected and distinguished writer. And I think he can just write what he wants and everybody will be excited by it. His books always do seem to be a kind of a list of things that you wouldn't think would go together. Yes, I think he starts with one thing and then he says, well, that made me think about this. And then you think this is pulls apart, but actually they're joined. And, you know, he's, he's always very interesting and thoughtful. There's uh, Muriel Barberi, who had a huge hit with uh, the book about the elegance of the hedgehog. Mm. It was about five years ago. I'm making that up. It was quite recently. She's got a new novel out. Camille Laurence has got a new novel out, which people are talking about. Faiza Gwen, Eric Reinhardt, Jean-Philippe Toussaint, and um, my own perennial favourite, Amélie Notombe, has got a new one out because she's had a new book out every rentrée. Again, I checked the numbers wow. of this and I've immediately forgotten. I think it's 28. Can that be true? Gosh, I well, feel I mean, like... she is really, really, really prolific, isn't she? I mean, so it doesn't surprise me. If you'd said it about someone else, I probably would be more surprised. Mm. And it's and it's the rentrée. And so now w- when you talk about the books that come out, they go blah, 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 blah. And of course, without <laughs> without whom, it wouldn't be the rentrée. Um, and I haven't read all of them. I've read quite a few of them. And even the ones that are not her best have are, are interesting and sharp and have something smart or thought-provoking or... Um, I just think she's a sort of phenomenon 
Do you, do you imagine if in English there was someone who wrote a book that was basically she's won prizes, she's in the Belgian Academy. You know, it's not she's not just churning stuff out. Um, if there was someone who who reliably wrote a really good book every year, I'm thinking like someone like Anne Tyler, except Anne Tyler doesn't do every year. Um, so I think those are the big novels, and um, but there's also a big sort of there. T- people are talking about Colson Whitehead because that's being translated. Oh, uh, right. So that will be coming out this September. So people, there's quite a lot of talk about that. You suggested that there was a, a whiff. Um, you suggested this to me earlier that there was a whiff of scandal somewhere well, as well. Yeah, there's a sort of juicy story. It's all, also about autofiction. It's all about autofiction. Turns well, out. Yes, I mean, it's France. No, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but so <laughs> it was those Martin Amis. It turns out, <laughs> and true. Uh, you know the other one. Late to the party. Yeah. So this is. Um, this again, this is is rather difficult to imagine in England. So there's a, a an editor called Jean Paul Entoven, and his um, he's just published his first novel coming out this rentrée. His son is Raphael, who teaches philosophy and is a TV and radio broadcaster on philosophy, also other things. I think he's just published his first novel as well, which appears to be a sort of autofiction. It's called a novel, but it's an autofiction uh, of his childhood. Uh, with a horrible stepfather who was violent towards him, so the, so his his former stepfather is now suing him. I mean, almost immediately for this, and a remote but loved father, step forward Jean Paul, the editor who everybody knows, who has now publicly broken off with him, uh, and said, you know, we're done. That's it. I can't I can't believe he did that. Um, and what happened? I, I don't know whether to tell you what happens in the book or what happens in real life, but <laughs> in the book. Um, he marries, uh, his dad is a very good friend of Bernard-Henri Lévy, of course. Of course, it's Paris as a philosopher. <laughs> so he marries the daughter of, of a BHL. She's not called that, you know, everyone's got a slightly different name in the book. And then he leaves her for the lightly veiled version of Carla Bruni, who <gasps> was going out with his dad. Yes. Do you follow? Yes. What a mess. Um, yes, and... <laughs> This 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 all sort of happened a few years ago, and it was sort of big. It was a big, you know, it was a sort of scandal, and people gossiped about it. It was a gossipy, yeah, you yeah, know, sort of thing, yeah. Um, but the thing is that he has now just written a novel uh, in which all of these things happen, and a number of people are already very cross. And then there's other people saying he can write what he wants. He's a writer. It's fiction, and um, so it's. And, and I think, as far as I could tell, they're both on different prize shortlists, the dad's novel and the son's novel. And it's just, I don't know if you have uh, um, remember me constantly banging on about The Seventh Function of Language by yes, Laurent Binet. Yeah, so which talks about, <laughs> yes, because I did, I absolutely sorry. Do. <laughs> um, you know, which talks about the French literary scene and just kind of amped it up and made it into a ridiculous, eye-watering cartoon this it feels a bit like Laurent Binet, except just yeah. in real life, and it's got lawsuits happening this yeah, time. Yeah, well, and I guess it sells books as well. It will probably be helping them both quite considerably. Well, I don't know, and it, and and they're both being very punchy about it. And this and and Raphael Entoven is just going, "This is my novel," and I think, and it's very, it's called Le Temps Gagné, and it's very, it's got lots of kind of Proustian overtones in it, and it's about, I think, you know, overcoming a, a difficult childhood to become yourself. But, you know, there's all these questions in here because the childhood and the people involved, everybody knows or thinks they know who they are. Mm. So there's a lot going on over there. There really is. There really is. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Leaving the world of fiction behind us now and entering a, a whole other mess, a mess of very real consequences, unfortunately, we have a trio of pieces this week, uh, which you're going to tell us about, Toby. They're all, I mean, they're all on the Israel-Palestine situation. That's about the only thing that they have in common. Yes, I suppose so. They are very different views on what is going on there and what has gone on there. Um, two of them based on books and one of them which is just a kind of opinion take uh, feature piece so I'll, I'll start with um so edward Lutvak, who is a kind of a an american how do i describe edward Lutvak? well he has one of my favorite <laughs> bylines of any of our contributors he's, he's a rancher and a former advisor to the u.s government on security yes. issues or something yeah. like that it's the rancher part uh, that gets me the, yeah a rancher and a spengali <laughs> essentially figure <laughs> But he's also a very, very good writer. And there's a new book out by Verso Books uh, called An Army Like No Other uh, by an Israeli called Haim Breshit Zabner. And it's about the history of the IDF, the Israeli Defence Forces. And it's a very uncompromising take on why the IDF, the reason why they're an army like no other is because they are, you know, uniquely bad uh, and guilty of many bad things in the eyes of the author. And Lutvak um, does take this book entirely to task and he feels that some of the accusations of war crimes particularly in relation to the six-day war in 1967 have absolutely no evidence in them um he's an interesting person to review this book because he was there during the six-day war he was a volunteer soldier and he can therefore offer quite a a unique perspective on things like military positions and you know the kind of nitty-gritty of what was going on on the ground and it's a very uncompromisingly written piece. And I don't necessarily agree with Edward's take on the entire situation in Israel-Palestine. But I think it is a well-argued deconstruction of that book and the problems with it. And it's, it's I mean, Versa are an interesting publisher, aren't they? They, they publish a great deal. 
And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to come out and just have a particular pop at Verso now, but it sounds like I'm bouncy because we also published a piece uh, last year by Lydia Wilson on a, on a, on a book by Max Blumenthal uh, um, that Verso published, which also seemed to be full of fairly unsubstantiated um, sort of non-evidence evidence that kind of almost shaded into conspiracy theory. And Lydia kind of very patiently took that book apart. And I do wonder sometimes, and they do lots of tremendously good stuff, but I sometimes wonder whether sort of books by them, they, they publish so much. I wonder whether they're always edited, scrutinised mm. and, yeah, and edited very rigorously. And as long as they kind of take a particular political line, and obviously anti-Zionism is one of their lines, um, it kind of almost doesn't matter what the content of that is. So anyway, that's one of the pieces. It's definitely worth a read. Um, I think, yeah, I think his take on it is really, really quite fascinating. Um, and it's, and it's interesting because it sort of leads into the next, well, it does obviously lead into the next piece. And that's leads, why we ran it that way. Exactly, <laughs> that's why we ran it that way. A small thing I'd just like to add to that as well. One, one of the things I think is that Lutvak's take, and I do agree with this, is that he, he feels that sort of the Israeli army is singled out, as mm. it has been in this book, as something that is uniquely bad. And Israel's own history of human rights abuses and, and potential war crimes are sort of held up to scrutiny in the way that those of other countries, Saudi Arabia, for example, aren't. And mm. I think that's a very valid argument yeah. that does, that does need to be made. And that there's also kind of a fundamental confusion about the reasons for that army having been Exactly. Formed. So it all goes back to, you know, 1948. And this was not a war of invasion. This was a war, you know, on Israel's part. This was a war of defence, whatever you think about the formation of the State of Israel. And he, you know, he makes that point rather forcefully. But yeah, you're right, Thea. The next piece, which is by Thomas Berlinger, which looks at the, the sort of the debate about Israel Palestine on campus discusses exactly these things and these sort of these sort of pieces of misinformation or whatever. And it's a Spurlinger and Lutback, if you put them in a boxing ring, you know, they would they would definitely go for each other. They, they're not of the same opinion. The book he's reviewing, um, Spurlinger, is it's by a guy called Kenneth Stern called The Conflict Over the Conflict. So it's, you know, people arguing about the Israel-Palestine conflict on, on campus. And one of the interesting things about that is that Kenneth Stern helped to craft the working definition of anti-Semitism. Um, as ratified by the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And one of the things about that is, it, you know, that definition has been legally adopted by universities in the UK and in the US. And in so, the you know, US. And in the US. So if you contravene that definition, you are, you know, by definition, guilty of anti-Semitism. And what Spurlinger draws attention to is the fact that the kind of the perennial debate about is criticism of Israel the same as criticism of Jews and, you know, tantamount to anti-Semitism, that was, Stern wove that into the definition, but that is something that he considers to be his kind, you know, he's Frankenstein, that is his monster, yeah. his runaway monster. He, for some reason, didn't see, he didn't perceive that, that that definition would be used on campus to kind of stifle criticism of Israel, which I definitely believe it has. I'm not sure Edward Lutwell would agree with me. Spurlinger definitely thinks it has as well. And Stern admits that it has, although from what I gather in his book, he doesn't really give a very good reason why he made this catastrophic mistake. But so is it, is it not a work of, of kind of, of, of contrition or...? It's sort of, I, mean, I haven't read the book, I've only read the review, but my understanding of it, that it's a sort of a, at best, it's a sort of a, this was something I didn't predict and it ran mm. away, but not, I made a big mistake and I'm very sorry. And he, <laughs> he says, which perhaps it should have been, he says that his original purpose of putting this definition was the purpose of data collection. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. I guess it means that, you know, if people are having a go at Israel, 
he kind of wants to know who's saying it and in one co- what context. And that's all very well. It's great to record that as data, but I don't quite see why that's necessary as a definition of anti-Semitism, personally. And I think it has been a big, big problem. You've seen the ramifications of it in, in this country in particular, with the debate about the Labour Party and anti-Semitism. And don't get me wrong, I think there were some tremendous problems and still remains tremendous problems in the, in the Labour Party about anti-Semitism, but also the kind of the overplayed fact, like no one's ever allowed to say anything bad about Israel without being accused by anti-Semitism. It definitely fanned those flames. I mean, in light of all this that we've just spoken about, by the time we reach the third piece in this trilogy by <laughs> Ari Shavit, it comes as quite a surprise to see the word do- peace in the headline. I mean, it's it followed by a question mark. But It does. And that's our question mark. It's not really Ari Shavit's question mark. He talks about the new piece. So Ari Shavit is an Israeli journalist. He's also the author of a very brilliant book called My Promised Land, which is a sort of a personal meditation on Israel-Palestine. I should say at this juncture as well, I am fully aware that there are three pieces here Uh, on Israel-Palestine, none of which have a Palestinian perspective. We haven't got any Palestinian authors in this issue. I'm I'm aware of that. It wasn't actually quite my intention when I designed the scheme a while ago, but something didn't come off. And I would also like to point our listeners to pieces that we've run in the last couple of years by very interesting Palestinian voices, such as Lina al-Safin, Akhtaf Suif, Carmen Nalbulsi. But anyway, that's my sort of slight mea culpa and, you know, get-out clause a la Kenneth Stern, um, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. But Ari Shavit's piece basically is about the New Deal, which is being signed, I think, as we record this podcast. Today, yes, on, today, the, on the White House on the, lawn. On the South, South lawn. lawn of the White House, where, you know, Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat shook hands and where various other peace treaties have been made. And it's, so it's about the peace deal between Israel and the UAE. Now, some people have dismissed this out of hand with the quite logical gambit that the UAE and Israel are not at war and have never been at war. So what is this peace deal? But actually, Shavit argues that it's about far more than, you know, sheen and show and pomp and ceremony. You know, this is about establishing diplomatic relations with an Arab partner. It's the only peace treaty uh, or diplomatic treaty between Israel and an Arab nation, apart from the one between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan, and they were both signed a long time ago. Bahrain have already jumped on board. That's particularly significant because essentially Bahrain is a a client state of Saudi Arabia. Um, So I don't think whilst the current king is in power in Saudi Arabia, there will be a treaty between Israel and the country. But I think as soon as he goes, the understanding is that to the young crown, the younger crown prince will be ready to sign that deal. Sudan is likely to go next. There's talk of Morocco. And basically, Shavit is talking about uh, a sort of a Sunni-Israel alliance, which he claims will kind of lead to a sort of a ring, he calls it a ring of, a ring of peace yeah. around the region. Um, I guess he doesn't talk about Iran, but which I, I, you know, I, I guess the feeling is that this will be the, the, the Sunnis and Israel against Iran, essentially. Well, and yeah, well, I suppose what he, and, what, he, what he does say when he does mention Iran, it's it's to say that Israel and the UAE are natural allies. In the, exactly. They have much more in common. And exactly. Both, and you know, Saudi Arabia have been completely happy for, you know, Israel to fly over their airspace in the direction of Iran for quite some time. So although, you know, on the surface, Israel and Saudi Arabia are, you know, not supposed to be allies, they are also natural allies. Now, listeners might wonder why we haven't used the word Palestinian or Palestinians yet. And it's Shavin's belief, it's Shavit's belief that through this, this treaty or these series of treaties, freedom for the Palestinians will fall into place quite naturally. Um, it's quite a leap of faith though. I mean it's it's quite it's quite a it's quite a leap of hope rather than faith even. 
I mean, yep. at the heart of it, he 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 is this um, Yusuf Al Otaiba, the UAE's uh, ambassador to Washington, and and Shavit's, you know, he's really full of praise for the way that that this man operates, and that you know, theology and ideology are being uh, apparently replaced by strategy and economics, you know, uh, reason prevailing sort of thing. And it's not about justice, it's about yes. pragmatism and yes. he's turning lemons into lemonade. And yes. I mean, it's, it's great. Yeah, I, it's great. So it's, it's all very well, but what happens if you're a Palestinian exactly. and you're after justice, for oh, example? Yeah. A, a phrase that you said that he, he thinks that um, the peace will sort of come about yeah. or fall into place. I, I, how does that happen without it being actively um, sought and negotiated and... Well, I, suppo- I suppose his argument, or I, I know his argument, is that firstly, as part of this peace deal, Netanyahu is not going to formally annex the West Bank. So that is a small win. Now, for it's at not least even, three years we've been. For at least three years, which, sounds, <laughs> which doesn't sound great, does it? And, and also it needs to be with the um, assent of the US. So if Trump doesn't get a second term, that is very significant, because I don't imagine Biden would allow that to go ahead happily. If Trump does get a second term, then it's kind of almost meaningless, isn't it? Because, you know, in three years' time, I don't imagine uh, Kushner and Trump are going to sort of stop Netanyahu doing what he wants to do. But, of course, Netanyahu may not be in power in three years' time, um, given all the corruption scandals that are encircling him. But I suppose I suppose what Shavit is saying more broadly is that nothing seems to be working for the Palestinians now. I mean, the status quo is not exactly good mm. for them. and. Yep something's kind of got to give. And you're right, I agree. I, I'm, I'm a little bit more sceptical than Ari Shavit is. I, I think it is a big leap of faith. But I think his understanding and hope is that this will, this kind of series of peace deals will quell extremism, you know, Zionist and, and settler expansionist extremism in Israel. And perhaps in a little bit when Abbas is no longer in power in Palestine, you know, in the West Bank um, for Fatah, you know, he's 85 now, he's not going to be around forever if we get a kind of new, younger, more reformist leader in, this can be the start of a process. And I hope he's right. You know, we'll see. If he is, you heard it in the TLS first. If he isn't, (laughs) I'm sorry, everyone. I don't mean that flippantly. I mean, you know, this is really, this is really, really serious. But it's, I I was pleased we ran this piece because although I don't necessarily share his rose-tinted view, I think it will get people talking. And I think not enough has been written about this deal in in Western media, and it's possible because people have, with understandable cynicism, thought, "Oh well, it's worthless." But well, I, don't I think suppose people hard. have looked will have looked at it from the outside and seen, you know, Jared Kushner's involvement, for example. Exactly. And immediately, that's a huge exactly. strike against. Exactly. If Trump sponsored it, it's got to be bad. You know, for yeah. anyone, on the, anyone vaguely in the centre, or even on the anywhere from the centre right to the hard left, is going to think it's you know just a bad a bad thing because of that. But. And he's very interesting, Shavit's very interesting on the diplomatic back channel as well, which I don't think other perspectives have offered, none that I've read so far. So I would very much urge listeners to go and read this piece because I think it will give you some things to think about. Well, um, they will be on the website. So, uh, I mean, we could clearly talk about this for at least another month, but we will we will have to leave it there. Uh, Toby Lichtig, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. If you are able to leave the house and promise not to do so in the company of more than five other people, you should find a copy of the TLS on a good newsstand near you. Or, of course, you can subscribe so you don't have to leave the house at all. Uh, And you'll find all the details of that on our website, the-tls.co.uk. This week's issue would be a great place to start for the pieces we have just discussed, as well as countless others, including a never-before-published short story by Edith Wharton and a look at the dark side of meritocracy in the US. 
Robert Irwin writes on the manifold obstacles to learning Arabic, and we look at how Arabic is, or isn't, taught in France. There are also thoughts on our changing relationships with ancient watercourses, plus a surprise postcard from Samuel Beckett. Of course, all that and more in this week's issue of the TLS. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.